This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. My name is uh, Lawrence Dettilio. I am a fine art photographer doing photography in Vietnam in the past and recently uh, was added to the board of directors for the Global Village Foundation, uh, an organization that I'm really very happy to be part of. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of There's a lot to talk about with the work that you do being on the board at the Global Village Foundation, as well as the art that you have done uh, in all your time in Vietnam. So thank you for coming on and uh, thank you for Lei Li and Shane for the in- warm introduction. Actually, both of those folks are uh, really quite uh, remarkable in their achievements, uh, in their personal lives. So I'm I feel like I'm in very good company. Yeah, good humans. They're good people. Now, tell me a little bit about the Global Village Foundation. Well, it started with uh, Miss Laylee Hayslip, who's uh, famous for the movie made about her. It was a really great movie, and it came out of her book. And her book probably can give you a better feeling for Vietnam from the war through today than most any book I've ever read about Vietnam to begin with. So, um she created, uh, started creating a foundation, I think it was 23 years ago. It was had one name, now it has a different name. And the whole idea was that in her village, and near her village, which is in Da Nang in Vietnam, which is in the uh, center of the, um, of, of the whole peninsula, um, she uh, decided to help a lot of very poor people and poor children. So over the years, she built up a, a foundation to do that. And uh, she's living in the United States, but she's Viet uh, Thieu. And um, she was able to have a lot of friends, and those friends helped with, with lots of donations. Uh, ultimately, they were able to build a building, and they're doing all kinds of things, especially to help children. And um, that's not, there's, it's not the only foundation, obviously, doing that in Vietnam from America. But um, what's curious about it today is that how it's morphing to find even better ways to help. One of those things is you can help children, you know, kind of through the high school years, but they really need to end up with a career. And in today's world, you really have to get to a university. So our latest thing is to try raising money for the specific purposes of being able to help some of the children who show a lot of talent move on to the uh, university years. And this is ideas to help pay for that. That is a a wonderful thing to raise money for because um, education in Vietnam um, is is needed, as I imagine here in the US as well, but any chance that we can get to help people who are, you know, on their way up uh, and just brilliant kids that are coming out of Vietnam to have an opportunity is a wonderful thing. Yeah, you know, it, I, it, if you put yourself in somebody else's shoes, it's amazing what you can find out. So if you try to imagine yourself in the shoes of a young Vietnamese person, female and male, and they've somehow gotten this help, 
and they're really feeling all charged up and they believe that their life can really come to mean a lot to them and to other people. And they get to the end of the high school and then what? What happens then? So if you're in their shoes, that would be a, a terrible um, calamity to not be able to move forward and you go, have to take a very ordinary kind of a job that doesn't pay you well, et cetera. But if, if you've been bright and uh, you want to move ahead, that knowing that you can get this kind of help to get through the university years is is uh, quite a, uh, a a great thing for them. Now, I want to qualify that slightly. So from an American viewpoint, that might sound pretty extreme because here, university education, well, we all know it's just incredibly expensive to do that today, especially in the uh, bigger name schools. But in Vietnam, the cost of the university education is quite different than here. Um, a good deal of that is essentially subsidized. So if you go to one of the universities, the cost structure of that is uh, just a small part of what it might be here in America. Uh, I have had lunch with you. We've had uh, hours long conversation and it was a delightful lunch. And so here we are, and I am I'm very happy to have you here. But at the same time, I want to know why Global Village Foundation selected you, a white person, a white man, uh, to be on the board. It's a it's a great question. Um, fortunately, I do have a reasonable, what I think is a reasonable answer. It, this all started with me being asked to... Um, go to Vietnam and spend three months there uh, working with my fellow artists who would all be young Vietnamese people who were doing avant-garde newer work, which wasn't yet popular in Vietnam as it has become today. So that was 2006. So I went there for three months and then several months later, I went back there for another two months and then I went back there several months after that, another month, spent 54 months actually in Vietnam working and with quite a bit of that in the countryside, not just in the big cities. So I guess from any reasonable viewpoint, that would make me one of the uh, only Americans to have spent that kind of time and invest that much of myself in Vietnam, who wasn't actually um, going over there to live because they had married into some kind of into a Vietnamese family, uh, which a number of Amer American men especially have done. So that that in itself is important, but also because I've been on another foundation, which has done um, a lot of help for women who want to build businesses in, in uh, poor rural communities and a whole number of other projects I've done. The upshot of it all is that with that much time spent in the country and that much, how should you say, emotional involvement, um, many of the my Vietnamese friends have been surprised that I, I haven't moved there permanently to become part, part of the scene. I, I can't because I have four sons and grandchildren here and all that kind of thing. But you can see that with that kind of involvement, I'm not, although I'm not Vietnamese, I'm well versed in, enough in it and driven by Vietnam and all the things that I celebrate about the country and the people and the culture. When you were growing up, because um, you are, I, I won't give away your 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 age, because you you look like a, a very young man uh, on screen. But uh, you you grew up definitely during uh, the the era of the war. Uh, Fifty years yes. ago, I, I'd imagine you were able to be uh, drafted or uh, volunteer yes. to the military. What was your perception of what was going on when you were growing up um, as it related to the Vietnam War? Oh, well, it was the very beginning of it. So, um, I, and yes, I was still at a draftable age. Um, and in fact, they did try to draft me in terms of motivation for me. 
was that my parents were among the uh, very rare Americans who had actually had contact with Vietnamese citizens um, uh, when I was growing up. So it'd be the 1940s into the 1950s. And um, the reason for that is that my father is a well-known uh, specialist in seashells. And he had one of the world's largest collection of seashells. And he was getting some of those seashells from folks that would probably be in the southern half of Nam and who lived on the coast and were fishing. And what they needed was clothing and other types of general stuff for their families. So my mother would wrap up a lot of clothing and send it to Vietnam through France. And then um, in, in turn, they would get uh, seashells back. So some of those seashells from Vietnam are in the, uh, in the um, American Museum of Natural History in New York and in the San Diego Natural History Museum, because that's where my father's uh, collection was divided into those two places after he passed away. So okay, there's quite a connection there. And we, what you can see is that having grown up around a family who knew a little bit about Vietnam, they were constantly talking with myself and my siblings about that. Uh, the result of which that I, I knew something about Vietnam and I knew, I kind of understood what had transpired there over the previous hundred years. So I was a hundred percent against that war. I thought it was the worst, worst choice this country, America, had ever made. And I became one of the fighters to try to stop that war from continuing. How did your parents get in touch with these Vietnamese people in the South in the 30s and 40s? My father was dealing with um, collectors in Japan. So it's probably there was a reference from Japan uh, that way, which, which would have been politically less complex. But since the French were still there at the time that he got started, which is even before I was born, uh, it's likely, too, that he might have had a connection through a French dealer as well, a French uh, uh, shell shell collection dealer. OK, I, I want if you can allow me to go into the weeds right now. Uh, do you know anything about why your father would source seashells in Vietnam? What is the difference? I mean, you know, to a lay person like me, a seashell is a seashell. But why would he go to Vietnam to source these seashells? Well, he didn't personally go there. My father hated to travel <laughs> to begin with. But so it's all done by mail, of course, back then. Um, but the reason for that particular hookup really has to do with how um, uh, people who are collectors, and especially in my father's case, he was a full-blown invertebrate zoologist trained and all that kind of thing. He became a museum curator for both of the museums I, I, I uh, mentioned earlier. And um, when they do that, they're looking for the relationship between seashells worldwide in every form of ocean and, and fresh water and how the evolution of those uh, shapes, uh, how those shells took place. And um, those relationships tell them a lot about um, uh, how, <clears throat> I'm not sure I'm going to find the right word here, but, but what we want to know, as scientists, what people want to know is um, what? how is the change going on within species and how do those species interrelate with each other? Specifically in the ocean, if you've got a species growing up in the Philippines, let's say, or that's common to the Philippines, it's not, not long before it'll evolve uh, maybe in the West Coast here of America because it, it can exchange the DNA through the water. Uh, we now know that that's going on through the air because monkeys who behave, change their behavior in one place of the country within the same within a year 
monkeys 10,000 miles away on another part of the world will have taken on the same new unusual behavior. That's a, a well-known concept uh, within the biological fields. And I don't know very much about it at all. A few things I know is the information I'm giving you. No, now. It, it's still fascinating. The amount of that, you know, that you're just giving me, it's like, it's a uh, mind blowing for me to imagine in the thirties and forties, there's this communication that's happening between an American man and I don't know, maybe uh, they're not farmers, but they're uh, fishermen, I, I guess. And fishermen. it's just mind blowing to think about in the thirties and forties, male going back and forth mm. to, you know, through France perhaps and arriving in American shores, studying these things that these fishermen in Vietnam were picking up way before anybody sort of like got there in a military way or had reason to be in Vietnam. And there's this correspondence between the scientists and, and fishermen. It is mind blowing for me to think about that. Well, I don't know if, if you're aware of this, but Vietnam, at least in the past, was uh, quite well known uh, in the scientific community um, for its butterflies that had, especially in the, in the northern part, northern regions, mountainous regions of Vietnam. And so my father also had quite a butterfly collection that he had built up. And that was most of that collection was entirely from Vietnam. I believe that some years ago, the Vietnamese government uh, did the right thing, which is to stop this type of uh, extraction of species from uh, Vietnam to elsewhere in the world, even though scientific purposes might have been behind that extraction. <clears throat> it had, Vietnam has had to do a lot to protect the wildlife, I guess you could say. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> I can imagine that sort of like protection, you know, at, even at the smallest level of seashells or butterflies, you know, it, it could be projected into much bigger forms of, of extraction. So I think, you know, starting it mm. at the very low levels is, was an important thing by the by the government. Yeah. I might also just add to the conversation that what generally is understood is that uh, the atmosphere does a complete mixture of itself. It remixes itself every within 24 hours. So whatever is going on here uh, in Los Angeles, if we've injected something into the atmosphere, some of that is getting all the way out to Vietnam and the Philippines and vice versa. In other words, it's, it's really a very worldly process. And that's another reason why there's probably a fairly quick relationship between a, a form of development, even human development that's going on in one place in the world. And then pretty soon you'll see it happening in another place in the world because of this constant mix so everything that's in our head, everything that's coming out of our mouth, what we're saying, uh, how we sweat, everything like that is impacted in a very minimal way, uh, 10,000 miles from, from Los Angeles. And, and are you saying <clears throat> this uh, based on a quantum kind of invisible or are you, are you basing it on more of a physical reaction uh, that's happening in the atmosphere or something more tangible? Uh, is, is it something that we can't see and it's quantum like prayer and meditation happening? Or are you attributing it more to a physical property? Okay, I'm not quantum. <laughs> and I'm sure trying to figure out exactly how that works. No, I think it's something much more obvious, which is because of the winds and, and weather, everything, this the, the atmosphere is churning constantly. And it's it's not like, well, if you have a storm here, that those molecules of oxygen in a storm here in L.A. don't have the ability to flow completely around the world. They do. 
the world the world's weather is constantly in a, in a mixture and you, you can see that from satellites when you see those videos from satellites if you look at that you see all that movement and if you speed up that movement you'll see yeah you could have something going on here that's also going on else in the someplace else in the world within 24 hours i think it's just purely physical thing you can is a way to think about it you know, mixing of molecules in the air. I always say, you know, we come here for the Vietnamese culture, but we get some science out of uh, these kind of conversations, you know, so <laughs> random, you know, yeah. but let's, let's go back to uh, your first time in Vietnam. What led you to Vietnam in the first place? Well, the, the simple story was that um, I was doing, uh, uh, you know, I'm a fine art photographer. And there's all my photography is oriented towards creating artworks. So I was uh, doing a, uh, an exhibit. Um, in a gallery, and um, a young man came up to me uh, with a, a rather good-looking um, uh, Asian woman. I remember the woman quite well. <laughs> and uh, uh, he asked if I had any interest in Vietnam, and I said only that I'd had some um, some some grounding in it uh, earlier in my life. And he asked me if I wanted to join a um, uh, a residency, is what we artists call it where I would stay in this building that he already had created, uh, and that was in Hanoi, and work with these 50 of these avant-garde artists. So um, at first, my reaction was that that was impossible for me. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I got together with my wife, and we talked about it, still decided it wasn't really for us. But uh, about a month later, a, uh, I was planning uh, a book, which eventually became the book known as The Soul of Vietnam, um, let me hold it up and you can see it there for a minute. That book here, I was planning that and um, with a with a publisher. What, what publisher year was this? Said, no, you absolutely have to go to Vietnam. So um, that's why we went. That was that was what inspired what, us. What year was that? Uh, 2006. So, so, so that, fall of 2006. That was your first time in 2006? Right. So, I, And I should add a cute thing on the end of it. Um, <laughs> that... Um, when we got there, of course, we didn't know really what what it would be like. Um, would, would there be uh, language issues and things like that? Um, what would we see? What would the place we're staying in? How nice would it be or not? Um, because we knew Vietnam had been up to that point in time, or at least up to the point in which Doi Moi changed everything, um, had been a fairly poor country, uh, dramatically poor in the case of uh, the 1940s. So we didn't know what to expect. So we got we got there, and it turned out that there was a in the building in which we are. All of these artists who were going to get to know were already there in sort of a party format because there was an opening of an exhibition of one of them in that very building in which we were going to be staying. Um, so we walked in, and within the first two minutes, we've got a couple of Vietnamese folks coming up to us, uh, speaking in very good English, uh, and um, we hit it off so great. So then an hour later, I looked at my wife and I said, do we ever really want to even go back to the United States? These people are great. Wow. <laughs> Went on from there. Yeah, that that is something that, uh, well, I, I don't know. I, I I feel like, you know, we, we both live in L.A. We live in the big city. But when we travel out to places that are, you know, I just got back from the south, uh, South Carolina, Missouri, and uh, driving through Kentucky and all that. You meet people that are, um, you know, salt of the earth people, and you meet the same mm. people, the same type right. of people in Vietnam uh, that lived 
in these places are just sort of not corrupted by the 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 the, the crowded density of the big cities. I mean, no, so no matter where you go in the world, the further out you you go and, and venture out to rural areas and and meet people, it's just really wholesome and good people. And I'm not saying city people are bad. I'm just saying that there is a real big difference between what we can feel with people who are giving and their generosity and their trust with with the with the people that they meet. I've been accused by many Vietnamese friends of being Viet- Vietnam's uh, biggest uh, uh, promoter. <laughs> they, they oftentimes think I go too far because if you're if you're an actual Vietnamese, full-time Vietnamese in Vietnam, there's lots of things that happen that you're not happy about and some things you think are great. So, of course, I think 90% of it is great. <laughs> so that gets me into some trouble with my friends there. Uh, but I, I do feel certain things. Um, what occurred to me and what became my book essentially was due to my per, a perception that I had. And the perception was very simple, that at, at the end of World War II, the uh, Vietnamese population was something under 40 million people, I believe. And then, of course, um, between the French and then the crazy Americans and then eventually the um, Chinese as well, uh, and then the whole business in Cambodia, uh, there was a lot of loss of life in Vietnam. So by the time you get through all of these war situations, you're into the beginning of the 1980s, um, it was really not very, uh, not a very healthy situation uh, in substantial part because of the U.S. blockading. Um, but what the government decided to do was to encourage people to, to have children. And um, we're now, what, Vietnam is almost at 100 million or right at 100 million people today. And I note that Ho Chi Minh was the person who said that um, Vietnam, in order to keep itself whole and keep foreigners from invading them, uh, you really needed to reach a population base of about 85 million people. It's a very interesting uh, picture that he kind of drew for us. So um, putting putting uh, Ming aside, um, if, if we're looking at this tremendous change that's taken place to the point at which Vietnam unknown to most Americans has become what I believe to be one of the more powerful and important countries of the world. It is the, has what has been the 13th and is now the 14th largest population in the world. And then you have one and a half million of Viet Q here. It's a lot. And that's just a tremendous change. And the question becomes, why that change? What happened to that? And that's one of the reasons I wanted to be there. I wanted to understand that, that, um, the, the points behind that change, what encouraged that besides certain decisions the government made, such as Doi Moy and other things that have helped them along the line. And then this whole idea in the, in the 1980s of how the Vietnamese people themselves were encouraged to stop feeling angry at Americans and learn to love Americans instead. And then there became a, uh, a rapprochement in which... Um, uh, that's what uh, got President Clinton. All of these moves and then this togetherness that's been going on between Vietnam and America, all that stuff has, of course, helped. But what I, I really felt was the most important thing was the culture itself. I think the way Vietnamese culture works is different from China. It's different from other Southeast Asian nations. And it's a very powerful type of a culture and a very old culture. And it's that culture and the components of that culture, I think, that has caused Vietnam to do to grow so dramatically, and now, of course, economically as well. 
uh, in ways that if we were to trace back in history, it would be hard to find any situation like that that's comparable. So on that basis alone, how did it get so far so quick? And what was behind that? And I believe it's that the people themselves and the way they think and feel and a lot of what they have learned as a culture that's uh, probably 5,000 years old. This episode is brought to you by Songkai Distillery, my only go-to gin company. Established in 2018, Songkai Distillery is Vietnam's first gin distillery founded by Daniel Nguyen, a Vietnamese American from Southern California. No matter how many people I have at my parties, we are always pouring Songkai gin. Songkai gin is handcrafted in small batches and prioritizes using botanicals and ingredients that are native and heirloom to Vietnam. The result is a product uniquely Vietnamese in taste and aroma. Songkai is now growing to include rice wine and traditional Vietnamese herbal liqueurs similar to Amaro. Songkai prides itself in Vietnam from the farmers who grow the fruits and herbs to the artists behind the artwork and design. Songkai is a community effort of people who are proud to be Vietnamese and collectively embody the spirit of Vietnam. Yeah. Um, I want to add to that. Uh, I think that the more I explore the Vietnamese culture, the more I realize the variety in the ways of being Vietnamese because of the, the rich history of the diaspora, the back and forth relationship that the diaspora all over the world has with the homeland, Vietnam, it's transformed Vietnam in ways that were perhaps un unforeseeable. You know, the openness that I think Vietnam has today has a lot to do with the the back and forth that that exists with families uh, amongst each other that whether it's sending money back or having so much conversation through letters in the in the old days and then finally phone calls and then finally the internet arriving i don't know um you know if vietnam was ever going to stay the same if that didn't happen and i think it was sort of a blessing for for vietnam to experience something like that i i agree i hadn't thought of that i think that's a, a wonderful um uh, concept um and and i think that's unusual uh for example uh my family came over here uh, my father was born in italy so i'm first generation and um i've gone back um recently to his village that he grew up in, uh, which is also coastal, much like Vietnam. And, um, you know, you introduce yourself and people are very nice. And, you know, in fact, I ran into people who are actually part of my family there. And yet they they treat you like somehow there's nothing Italian about you because you're American. So somehow. So in other words, that closeness that you're talking about between uh, the Vietnamese folks that are still in Vietnam and all the Vietnamese folks that are elsewhere in the world, including those that are probably even born abroad, I, th I think that mix is not that common, That the, the, the retaining of that relationship. For, for example, it's Global Village Foundation. Uh, Laylee Hayslip probably got over here when she's probably uh, 20, 21, 22 years of age, <clears throat> married to an American soldier. And um, here she is having put a great deal of emphasis on her life starting in the 1980s to um, trying to heal the relationship between the United States 
in Vietnam and to help people in the poor communities uh, in the Da Nang area who were so badly harmed by by the war. So that 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 kind of link up, I think, is critical. And oh, by the way, in my most recent conversation with Lei Li, she told me that her biggest ambition was not just to create that sense of togetherness between the U.S. and Vietnam, but she felt the whole world needed to be like that. And she felt that she wanted to dedicate uh, the rest of her life to that effort. And I feel very uh, similar to that in my own feelings. You know, I, I I think that there is very few people of her generation that is so adamant about the closeness. Uh, there's many people who have lost a lot lives mm. and property mm. they've lost their way of life in vietnam and they're still very bitter that generation of of Lely's generation is is still have not gotten over the hump have not recovered from the loss and um in order for us to become um whole again uh i am not sure if the older generation just needs to pass on. And, you know, this is a, a, a critical point I talk about in the podcast quite often is, you know, although we know as fundamental um, forgiveness is something that we all need to move on, um, it is quite difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would guess it would be. Um, <clears throat> it, it's also interesting to me that um, some of that, is, is maybe uh, emphasized because the respect for the oldest generation is so important within Vietnamese culture. And that culture has uh, is, is common in the Viet Cube community even today, even though we're talking about two generations later of, of people growing up and becoming adults. Um, let's make a contrast here. That's not uh, the common thing in the United States. All the emphasis, commercial emphasis, and uh, has been since really since 19, it would be 1964 when this started, that all the commercial emphasis was on, on very young people because what big companies realized was that the spendable income was from people who were starting their jobs and they only had responsibilities for themselves. They didn't have to own a home. They didn't have to pay for cars. They didn't have kids to pay for, all that kind of thing. So that's where it all went. And it's still there. It's there in the music. It's there in, in entertainment. It's there in every walk of life. So, uh, for example, I have four sons ranging in age from mid-30s to the 50s. And I can tell you that um, these are all very bright guys. They're extremely capable. And I'm sure a lot of they would say that a lot of what they learned in life that's made them successful has come from myself and my wife. Um, but they really don't have much care for um, the ideas and thoughts and feelings and experiences that people my age uh, have had. They've got their own and they believe in their own. So in other words, there's no following the older generation as a way to um, think and feel about your, your current life. Whereas I think with VQ, there's still a lot of that kind of connection. You know, <clears throat> in that connection is a result of a disconnection. The yearning for the connection, and I'm speaking from firsthand experience, that connection comes from this deep disconnection, this deep cut uh, ties with our culture, with our motherland, this severance of the umbilical cord, if you will, with my generation and what is really 
happening in Vietnam. And the reality is I have a yearning and a thirst to be entirely Vietnamese, but I'm entirely American. So I have this dual sort of identity that exists uh, 100% as an American and 100% somebody who understands the Vietnamese culture from the inside. But at the same time, I don't feel like I'm one or the other as well. So that mm. sort of mm. that that weird sensation of not being uh, accepted in the American culture, not being accepted entirely uh, when I go back to Vietnam, but understanding the American culture from the inside, understanding the Vietnamese culture from the inside creates this weird bridge and bond that 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 I will probably never lose to the day I die. And And I think that's sort of the difference between even your sons and you and 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 kids who are growing up in Vietnam right now who didn't experience this severance this cut that that this diaspora has experienced so uh we are a a unique bunch of people uh that were separated from 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 our mother uh, basically and your sons and you are experiencing um a relationship that's healthy that's intact in terms of cultural sort of uh uh, integration. Um, and I think that the kids that are born in Vietnam after the war and their parents, they also feel the same way. They don't have that need to to question what does it mean to be Vietnamese as the kids in the diaspora, myself, um, you know, being born in one of the first kids to be born in that uh, wave right after the, the war. I sure. just have this sensation of <clears throat> being lost. I've always felt that way. Even when I go back to Vietnam, I don't feel whole and I don't feel whole here. But at the same time, I feel entirely Vietnamese when I'm in Vietnam and entirely American when I exist amongst my white uh, community here. It's the strangest mm -hmm. feeling. I, th I think there is actually seems to me that there's two pieces to that. Um, let's just go back to my sons for a moment. As I said, they, they have phenomenal lives. Um, their successes, which are their own, really not due to me. Um, they, it's entirely those guys and what they've been able to make out of their lives, which is uh, beyond phenomenal. Um, but there's another thing going on here. And, and th this fact that they don't really, at this point in their lives, would not necessarily refer to me or to my wife for information, for suggestions, things like that. Or if they do, it'd be very rare. And the reason for that is that the dynamics of life have changed greatly within a couple of generations. Let's just start with something as simple as the internet. So, you know, the internet didn't really become the internet the way we understand it until around 1991. And um, that made a rather dramatic, began to make what's become an obviously very dramatic change, both technically speaking, but also how the world operates, how people integrate with each other or don't integrate with each other, all of that kind of thing. So I don't have to elaborate on that because I'm sure you in the audience knows what I mean. Um, so with all of that, the older generation doesn't typically keep up with that kind of an evolution. So in, in a way, they're a little bit out of it. And, um, and because of that, it's not really doesn't make sense for younger people like you to reference their parents that much for information, intelligence, background, um, or uh, older experiences, because they're really not germane to today. So it makes perfect sense for this generation, your generation, and then the generations coming up and back of you, uh, the ones who are probably 20 years old now, it makes perfect sense for to have to rely more on yourselves rather than the preceding generation. So that, that's item number one. 
The second thing is, I think we need to make a comparison here. What you're saying about your feelings towards Vietnam, I think is very critical because again, it speaks to culture. And that culture, the best word I can think for is a, a tremendous amount of collaboration that's involved. I think Vietnam is, of all the countries I've been in, it's the most collaborative society. The, the society in which people link up with each other and share with each other and relate to each other to the point that if you're in the middle of one of the big cities and you're at a major intersection, you've got the 3,000 motorbikes there and 3,000 there and three there and three there. Somehow or another, there's a collaboration, an, un, an unseen or unsaid collaboration between them that they manage to make that all flow beautifully. Now, I've been on a motorbike all the years I've been in Vietnam, and, and I can tell you that that flow is kind of has its own kind of an energy and a feeling to it that's that's pretty marvelous. People will pull up in a big city like that with all these motorbikes, and suddenly there's all these conversations going on while the traffic light is red. I don't know that you can see that too many other countries. So there's something in that collaboration that's fairly unique and fairly profound in Vietnam. And as a consequence, I think you're feeling that and that it's essentially a loss of collaboration is what you're talking about. You're, you're here, they're over there. You know, some of your family is there, some of it is here. The collaboration is much more difficult. Fortunately, you've got what we're doing right now. We've got Zoom and, and these other means. So So maybe that problem for Viet younger VQ people will go away ultimately be because of this communication possibility. <clears throat> I love speaking to artists because of this, because of this ability to analyze these sort of uh, idiosyncrasies in, in life. And, you know, even though you're a fine mm -hmm. artist, you're able to articulate in words, these differences, and they may or may not be accurate. They may or not be, perfect they may or not be um uh, true to the senses of somebody else but what i love and respect is that there is an ability to kind of like think about it and and simmer over this idea of collaboration and it's a beautiful thing this is your opinion and your observation and i i value it because it is a, a, a something that i've never thought about and i hope that the audience can sort of see that this is a very valid way of looking at um, our Vietnamese society from the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. And with that, I want to lead into the way that you perceive the country um, as an outsider. And how do you know what images to keep, what images to take, what images to shoot? How do you kind of like the process of feeling all of these um, uh uh, emotions that you want to present visually? What is your process? I know this is a very clumsy question, but I think leading in from like how you just kind of explain collaboration, uh, it's interesting to hear uh, your outsider's perspective on how you see the world of Vietnam through your lens. Um, I, yeah, I think there's a couple of good words that would help to describe that. One is that... Um, I'm very impressed by uh, the feeling of energy that's before the camera. So if I'm walking along and I discover a person in the street, I think it's interesting for some reason, I start a conversation, we kind of hit it off. Um, one of the attractions probably has been that there's an energy there coming out of that person, something you just feel uh, to the point that um, you decide that making a photograph of this person would make sense, especially if it's going to 
to show up at a book or something like that. Because you want other people, uh, you want, in my case, especially you want Americans to understand the energy of a Vietnamese person, such as yourself. Um, I want them to know that. So, so the energy component is certainly one of those things. Another thing that uh, artists, especially photography artists, use a lot is um, time. So when, when, when you're looking at something, there's always a feeling of time involved there. Either time is slowed down or speeded up. So you, you are reacting to that usually intuitively. It's not something you're analyzing in your mind. You don't even have the time to do that in most situations because the situation is very fluid. You're trying to capture that one one hundredth of a second in which that both that fluidity and the uh, sense of time behind that has become um, uh, exactly the point at which you want. So if you're you get really good at this over a lot of years and, and typically um, the type of people are uh, very good at it are those who are doing an editorial type of a work, which is what my book is essentially is it's editorial photography. Uh, it's opinionated. Uh, it's not meant to be accurate or anything else like that. It's just my perception of things, uh, which is why I'm called a fine artist instead of uh, a news a news uh, journalist, um, because it's, I'm not trying to be objective. I just want people to know how I feel, what I've experienced um, with all of this. So anyway, those are two components. Now, there's a lot that goes into there, and um, we can't cover that because I've been teaching photography for, well, for a lifetime. And um, I could tell you that it's a lot of work. It's four years of steady work to get somebody up to speed and all these things that go into this perceptual uh, question that you've asked. How do you know when to keep an image to go to publish it in a book? Ah, that's a great question with, with uh, uh, yeah, a, a, an answer that's um, important, I think. Um, you... Most photographers, uh, if they're and especially if they're uh, fine art photographers, uh, working from within themselves rather than working for another party like an editor of a newspaper, um, they're going to take a lot of them because they don't really know after they've made them and compare them and sort them all out later on which ones are going to feel more uh, appropriate to the situation. Uh, is it a book? Is it an exhibit? Is it going to be online? Those kinds of questions. Uh, which which ones of the images are going to be appropriate to the major point of the, the book? Um, and um, so in my case, it's probably in my inventory now, probably 400,000 images because I don't throw them away right away. You can store them online. Why should you? So they just sit there. That had to be boiled down to about a thousand potential images for the book, knowing that the book would have 150 images in it. And that brought it down to 450 images. Now, if I've got a great little story that you've got to hear here. So at the point at which I'm at that point in the book where I'm now boiling down to 450. So I know they're all strong. I know they're all relevant to what I want to the points that I want to make in the book. Um, I know the book. I need to kind of get it done. So I don't want to waste too much time. So I decided to take the 450 photographs. I took them to a local uh, uh, film processing place and had them just make little um, postcard size images for me, uh, prints for me. And I put them all down on the ground of the apartment I was staying in. Now, the apartment happened to be owned by the family of a young woman, Vietnamese woman that I had hired to uh, be my assistant. Uh, to or to really help manage my work there and she was a very very good manager 
So um, I trusted her, although she knew not anything about art. She came from kind of family where they never would have never had a chance to interact with that. Um, and um, she certainly didn't know anything about making a book. And but she had been a very loyal helper and a great friend for about a year. So I asked her to come on up to the apartment and take a look at all these photographs. I said, tell me, I, I know which ones I've made notes on, which ones I think should be in the book, but I want I want to know what you feel. I'm going to stand up here so you can see my, my little demonstration. So, <laughs> so she's walking around looking, 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 and finally she said, I said, well, what do you think? She said, no, 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 yes, yes, no, 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 yes, yes, yes. And she went through all 45 of them about 10 minutes. She said, all the ones I said yes to, those ought to be in the book and the rest of these no now how would she know that i thought you know it's her culture she knows and i'm very glad she did that because those are the images that are in the book and i think it made the book all that much better so um thank goodness for her tremendous help and her, her great intuition and insight another example of how i read vietnamese people in general i, I think she and the gods collaborated to make sure that i didn't screw this book up and, and I, I am pretty happy about how this book has been, and, and it's it's almost sold out. I think we maybe have 50 copies left here in the U.S. Half of the uh, thousand that were reduced were sold in Vietnam and the others here. And um, the reason for that was the essay uh, by Nguyen Khi Duc, who's a very famous Vietnamese guy who's been back in Vietnam as long as I have been there. And um, he wrote this essay, and it didn't seem appropriate for the Vietnamese market, but it did for the American market. So we did two separate uh, 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 printings, 501, 500 to the other. So the one here, the ones that I have here uh, include Mr. Duke's essay. Uh, people, if people from your blog are reading this, they might recognize him as a very famous uh, uh, news guy on uh, television um, in, via, in the United States uh, being broadcast out of San Francisco. He became quite well known. <clears throat> uh Duc, if you are listening uh i've reached out <laughs> i would love to have you on the podcast um he's he's an important figure uh in the uh literary world uh, in the mm. intellectual circles he's quite a, a an interesting man um but i want to go back to the woman that was picking out these photos with you what do you think that she was seeing why do you think that she picked the ones that she did is there any way that you can systematically uh, articulate what you think that she was seeing? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, I should point out that I've been photographing for already 45 years when uh, Hua, that's her name, when she came along and kind of uh, became such a close friend. <laughs> um, and the answer is, I think, pretty simple. In all of those years of teaching and being a photographer and doing exhibits and getting all kinds of help, financial help for my career, all that kind of stuff going on for so long, um, there were some things I still had to learn. And frankly, despite my age, I'm still having to learn and sometimes learning from younger people. Um, and that was that the, the image, the point of the image, the intention of the image has to be very clear. If it takes people a little bit of work to try to figure out, okay, why am I looking at this image? What importance does it have to me? Uh, what reaction am I supposed to have out of it? Uh, that uh, hurts the relationship between the image and the person viewing it. So intention becomes um, a driving force for a photographer. 
the interesting part is that if I'd been a journalist uh, photographer do, doing this type of editorial work, I probably would have known that uh, far earlier because in journalism, you're told what point, you know, you're sent out there to do, get these photographs of a situation and the editor has a specific point in mind. So you're always working to that point. You're not working internally from just your own feelings. So it's not surprising to me that I didn't know that having never been a journalist. Um, but um, it was good to find that out. And uh, I think my work has been better for it. And I owe her a lot. And she knows that I owe her a lot. So, um, Where, I mean, if this if your book uh, is for sale publicly, how would people find it? Um, they can go to my website and get it directly from me, which is cheaper. And um, what is uh, also sign it for them, which is kind of nice. And that's uh, www. Larry, my short name, larry.tilio.com, which um, uh, are you able to um, uh, flash that up on your uh, screen? Yeah, I'll, I'll, no, I'll put that in the link. Yeah. So if anybody yeah. uh, wants there's, to. There's not many left. And, and, I, and I, I really think that um, I'm going to at least do two more books in Vietnam, but I don't know that they'll be like this. I'm, I'm very interested in um, rural women's situation in Vietnam, and I've worked a lot with rural women there. So that that kind of finding out more about that turns me on so that's likely to be the next book it's about women women and more specifically rural women i hope that's how it worked out um so this may be the last a few of these that are around so if people want them they, they should get in touch if you go onto the website and then you go to the pull down menu book you'll see it's available for sale right there and then i will ask you to i will ask the person if they would like it signed and what they would like the besides my signature what comment they'd like me to make. That's pretty typical for almost everybody who's bought it directly from me. You can get it on Amazon, but you need to put my full name in and, along with the title of the book, The Soul of Vietnam, but you won't find it otherwise. It's it's uh, just the way Amazon works, crazy. Now, uh, I want to end on this um, Global Village Gala that you're having uh, coming up here at the end of the year. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I'm losing your voice, uh, Kenneth. I'm sorry. Can, can you tell me a little bit about the Global Village uh, Gala uh, that's coming up at the end of the year? Right. Um, so that's on November 18th, and we've just put out, uh, we're just in the middle of sending out cards to say, save the date. So what that's going to be is since it's the, uh, the evening is a full-blown gala uh, with um, food and tables and all that kind of thing. It's an actual sit-down thing. Um, Kitaro, the famous uh, musician who provided the music, who composed the music for uh, a Heaven and Earth movie, um, he will be there with his group playing, and he is to be honored uh, at that. Uh, Ted Ophius, uh, uh, shoot, now I'm losing it. Anyway, a former ambassador of Vietnam, who is a friend of mine, he knows we know each other. Um, uh, he is going to um, be there and also be celebrated. And um, certainly some of the other uh, folks who are well known in relationship to the movie and to Lely's book will, will also be there. I don't know all of them at this point because some of them we're asking and we haven't heard back from them yet. But anyway, it's that kind of a deal. So there's a whole big thing after the dinner. There's a whole presentation that's going on with music and all kinds of other great stuff. And then prior to that, to the gala itself in the uh, afternoon, uh, probably in Orange County, someplace uh, there'll be a uh, what is announced to the 30th anniversary uh, screening 
of the movie, which everybody can go to. Uh, it would be in a theater someplace. And um, a little bit of discussion by some of the people involved in making the movie, including Miss uh, Hayslip, Lady Hayslip, who the movie is about. Um, we'll be giving a little talk before or after that. And in the morning, uh, Ted Osius, the ambassador, who's come out with his own new book, and Lei of course, who has her two very famous books out, they're going to give a whole uh, presentation about books and how they thought about them and how these books came, came to pass uh, in the morning session. So there's actually three things you can attend or you can just go to the, um, uh, to the um, uh, gala and um, enjoy all the stuff going on there. There'll be, I think, an auction thing going on. I'm actually going to have a, a, a photo booth there. So I'm going to photograph everybody else to be photographed with a portrait kind of thing. Um, so it's going to be very exciting. But the whole idea is to celebrate not these people, in, including um, uh, Kim Fook, uh, who you who you all probably all know that name. But for regular Americans, I have to always say, oh, yeah, she's famous as the um, napalm girl, napalm girl. Right. It's an, an unfortunate uh, thing. And and I'm hoping that uh, Nick, who I know, who did the photograph, I'm hoping that he will be there. Um, as well. And um, it's just going to be a phenomenal thing, whether you're American like me, uh, it's a phenomenal thing to be part of this, this, this whole day. Um, and um, it will be um, terrific for anybody who's at Q. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for coming on. And mm -hmm. I will, you know, uh, include some of the links to the information that you just talked about. And um, I, really appreciate your point of view um, today and spending time with me. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your interest and, and the chance to uh, uh, express my fervor for Vietnam and for Vietnamese people. Thanks again, Lawrence. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Vietnamese podcast. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition, ultra low net carb goodies, like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.